No, I don't need the thing. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I have a key question. What's the kill switch time? All right, so, so we have a problem, which is that I have a lot to say, um, and I have lots of things in my heart that I want to say, and I hope that the right things come to the top and that you hear those things and not the things that stumblingly work their way through. Uh, but we also might speak quickly, so as the metaphor goes, you get to drink from the fire hose. Um, let's throw um, Philippians um, 1.27 through 2.13 on the screen, and I'd like us to read this together as a group um, in unison today. All right, one, two, ready? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has kindly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Those are great words, aren't they? It's cool. We had great worship and great words, and now if I suck, you still get your money's worth for the morning. <laughs> Would you go back to verse 12 for me? Let's go back to verse 12. Um, and let's just read that last phrase together again. Back, back. Just this last phrase. These words, work out your salvation. Ready? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Take about 20 seconds, turn to your neighbor, and find out what that means. <laughs> Go for it.
All right, so let's see. Um, I mean, it, we could, this is exciting, and I, if, we had, if we hadn't taken so long doing other things, we could have more conversations together. But, um, so let's hear, let's hear a few things. So I want to hear from one or two people. Uh, what do you think this is? How do you work out your salvation with fear and with trembling? Oh, boy, this is the don't look anyone in the eye, don't look anyone in the eye kind of game. All right, you're a trustee. I'm, I'm, I'm away with it this morning. Sorry. You're away with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to tap. No, don't tap Toby. He's all right. Okay, all right. What does it mean? You sort of work out your salvation with fear and trembling? It's good. That's good. Anything to add to that? That's good. Phil, you're always, you're always talking. Talk today. Muddle through as best you can. All right. So, I mean, we can go on and on in terms of asking questions, because I think this is actually a really challenging verse. And I think we might have, some of you might have raised some objections to this, like the first objection, Jesus has already worked out my salvation. What am I supposed to do? I mean, didn't he already, like, die on the cross once for all, once for sin, and now I live through him, and now, like, how am I supposed to do it? Can I repeat the cross? Is that, is that a meaningful statement? Um, also, Jesus is, of course, God. How do I work out my salvation with fear and trembling if, how, how am I supposed to be like him in that? I find this to be very, very challenging. And so I think we get have some natural objections. And yet, I think that Paul has a very specific thing in mind, which he's nodded to in the passage we've read together already. So in uh, chapter 2 and verse 3, so 2, 1 through 4, he's talking about community life. Let's get to verse 3, and he says very specifically, uh, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others um, above yourself. So there seems to be a call to humility. There's something about humility that's very important. And uh, when he goes through this poem about Christ's life, and this is verse 8, so chapter 2 and verse 8, in the middle of this great poem, he says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. And so I think that when Paul asks you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, what he kind of means is that you should be humble like Jesus. Now that's sort of helpful, but only sort of helpful, because we have this clear command, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Great. How do I do that? By being like Jesus. Great. How do I do that? By being humble. Great. How do I do that? And so I think the command opens a number of questions that we have to explore. And you know what? I think we have to spend some time thinking about what it really means to be humble. How am I supposed to be humble? And how do I be humble in any meaningful sense like Jesus was humble? This seems to me a tall order, but I actually think we can find some solutions to this problem. So, what is humility? What is humility? I think it is safe to say that of all the so-called virtues of the Christian life, humility is the least understood and most confused. It's the virtue we're most likely to make a muddle of uh, when we walk through this life. And so I think there's a number of things that we have trouble with. One, we really value humility in, in others, but we never feel we have enough of it ourselves. Can you imagine being a person who said, you know, nope, I'm humble enough. I've reached, I've reached my humble goals, and I can move on to a little more pride now. Like, how, how do you get to that? How do you get to that level? Uh, we love to note, and we note with some relish, uh, the lack of humility in other people. We love to point out other people's pride and their arrogance and their presumptuousness, but we really, we also love to turn a blind eye to our own pride and our own arrogance and our own presumptuousness. There's like a huge double standards when it comes to how we deal with humility with other people. When we think about actively becoming more humble, all of our strategies are really goofy as far as I see the strategies. So take some of these common strategies. The strategy A, thinking less of yourself. So you're walking along the streets of, of St. Andrews and you think to yourself, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing. 
You try to put yourself down. You try to think, no, no, I really don't, you know, you have a bad encounter with someone at work or a professor or someone who deals with you, and you think, I just deserve it because I'm nothing. And so there's this kind of attitude of putting yourself down, and we think this is a good strategy to attain humility. We think we should be more self, um, self-deprecating. We should askew compliments. Have you guys ever tried to compliment someone, and then they reject the compliment? Like, maybe your mom has made you a pie for your birthday, and it's a delicious pie. You guys like your meat pie, so I say pie. But when I say pie, I mean like a giant fruit pie. I'm an American, apple pie, come on. And so, so she's made you this pie, and she gives it to you. You say, Mom, this is the best pie I've ever had. And she says, no, it's not. It's the Lord's pie. <laughs> Sorry, Mom. The Lord made the greatest pie I've ever had. And, and there's this confusion about how we go about being humble. Because it warps our engagements and our relationships. Or uh, we think that we ought to take the lowliest and most menial tasks for the sake of having the lowliest and most menial tasks. But how do you get the lowliest task? And how do you have to keep getting lower and lower and lower until you're maybe just crawling on the floor? I just think these are very difficult things to have to work through. And on reflection, it seems to me that a great deal of our convictions about how to be humble are actually reflections of just self-hatred. We think that if we're humble enough, it means I've hated myself enough to make God happy with me. And I think that's really troubling. So, there's another big problem with our strategies for being humble, which is, how do you know when you've succeeded? Imagine this morning, you set yourself to a goal. You say, you know what, Lord, after this Sunday, in the worship and the words, I want to be more humble. How will you measure God's answer to your prayer? And if you feel you've succeeded, we're back in the same problem. Thank you, God, I'm humble now. (laughs) Or would you say, thank you, God, I've had enough of humility. Please move me on to some other virtue at this point. (laughs) This reminds me, one of my dear friends prayed once, um, unwisely. He said, Jesus, teach me discipline. Okay, this is not a very good prayer. I'll tell you why. He entered into a season of his life where everywhere he went, he got slammed. He got put down, insulted, defeated, rebuffed. And then he was like, Jesus, why is this happening to me? And then he remembered his prayer. And so he changed his prayer from that moment to Jesus, teach me vicariously through the mistakes of others. (laughs) That's a good prayer. That's a good prayer. Well, with all these conclusions regarding humility, I think there is one underlying and critical problem, and that's this. Humility is not itself a virtue attained directly. Let me say this again. Humility is not something attained directly. You can't set yourself to have the goal of being humble and become more humble. Humility comes as a byproduct of something else. And I think this is exactly what we see in the image of humility that Paul gives us of Jesus in Philippians 2. His humility comes because of something else, not because he sets himself just to be the most humble. So let's try and talk about what this looks like, and we've got to spend some time in this uh, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Could we go back to verse 5? So we've got this opening phrase about, have this mind among you, uh, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Think like Jesus thought, seems to be Paul's opening command. We're going to imitate Jesus, and humility is going to come for us in some meaningful way by by adopting the same kinds of attitudes that Jesus had. That seems to be what we're looking at, but we gotta talk about these attitudes. And first, actually, there's some things we simply have to say about these verses that are just important for us as readers. So the first thing is that um, some people think this is actually an early poem, early kind of worship poem in the church, uh, and that Paul's repeating it. 
I don't know. Um, it's clear that there's a, there's a structure for it, that, that Jesus begins as equality with God, and then he descends to the point of the cross, and then he's raised up again to this point of highest exaltation. It's probably a kind of verbal chiasmus, where you start high, and you move to the low, and then you come back to the high. And so we're paying attention to kind of the patterns as we listen. Uh, there's some great words in here. Uh, so Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he had an equality with God. Um, a lot of people seem to think that, yeah, Jesus' divinity kind of came later. No, Paul's pretty clear about Jesus being equal to God really early on. And Philippians is not a contested letter. Um, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Um, the other translation is to be taken advantage of. He, he, didn't, um, he didn't use this divine power. We're going to get to that in a second. Let's go to the next verse, verse 7. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. This made himself nothing is a word called kenao. It's kenosis. Uh, those of you who study theology, you will know that kenosis is made to do a lot of theological legwork. It's just, it, you know, all sorts of questions about how God works are freighted through kenosis. And I want you to forget all of that for a moment. Uh, most likely... Most likely, um, we think this probably means something a bit more like laying off the insignia of rank. So if you're a general and you've got all these stars and bars that tell you who you are, it means you laid it aside and you're not going to take advantage of the rights and duties allotted to you as that. And I think there's actually a great little parallel we could do here. Jesus, who although he had an infinite line of credit with his father, instead cut up the credit card and became a humble working man instead. Now, the credit's still there. He's still got access to the infinite power of God, but he's not going to use the tool that gets him to it. He's going to do some other method. And I think that's actually maybe a helpful way just to think about what's going on in Jesus' identity here. So, uh, he's found in human form. Uh, he humbles himself, becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is a shameful death. It's the most shameful death imaginable in the ancient world. Uh, the Romans didn't like writing the word because it had such bad connotations. Uh, we have all these nice pictures of kind of Jesus kind of clothed in crucifixion. He would not be clothed. He'd be naked. He'd be mocked. Um, it, would be, it would be a horrible situation. Uh, let's go on, verse 9. And therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. So uh, Jesus is Lord of heaven and of earth and of hell. If you're under the misapprehension that Satan is Lord of hell, you're not. Jesus is Lord of hell. Just think about that for a moment and be terrified. Um, and then verse 11, uh, finally he comes on, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So he goes from a place of exaltation. He humbles himself in obedience to the cross. He's raised to the place of highest exaltation. And one final note to point out, this word Lord Jesus Christ is kurios. This is a political statement. In the Roman world, Caesar is kurios. Kaisar Kurios, Caesar is Lord. But here are these Christians saying, <clears throat> Christos Kurios. And it kind of flows through our heads. We kind of ignore it. But this is actually, this is the statement that gets Christians killed. That you believe Jesus is Lord and not any other sovereign power. Okay? Um, so, this great stuff. All this stuff just kind of has in our heads. So, these are the attitudes of Jesus that we have. And this asks us a question. With the humility of Jesus in view... Which of those attitudes makes Jesus humble? And which one can I emulate? Being in the very nature of God. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not God. I don't have a divine nature. Uh, he lays aside his divine nature. Well, I can't do that either. I don't, I don't, I don't have a divine nature to lay aside. Uh, he takes on the form of man. Well, I've already got that. It's not helping me very much at the moment in this process. He became obedient to death, death on a cross. Well, whew. Hopefully, that's not what God's asking me to do, but maybe. Uh, then, at the name of Jesus, he's then exalted to a place of lordship over the nations. Is that, is that what I should think? I should think, Lord, 
I will be Lord over the nations. And that's going to make me humble. Should it be that I bring all others to bow down to me in total subservience? Like this is, this is a very strange pattern. Which attitude are we supposed to follow so that we can be humble like Jesus? If this is an image of Jesus' humility. And I actually think it's helpful for us to draw from a different passage, a passage very similar in in structure, but it actually gives us some of the clues. So let's go Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, and here we see this. That's Hebrews 1, and that's okay, but let's go to Hebrews 12. Well, listen, it'll go up in a second, but I've got it written down here, all right? Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, this is not a different set of words, but I think it gives us a kind of parallel and a way to see that why did Jesus go through what he went through? He didn't go through the cross because he was trying to be humble. He went through the cross because of the joy that was set before him. God gave him a task and a call, and in pursuit of that call, Jesus followed it no matter what, and the no matter what led to what is for us an image of humility. So let me say that really clearly once again. Jesus does not humble himself for the sake of humility. Jesus humbles himself for the sake of the work. He humbles himself for the Father. He humbles himself because that's what it means to be human. And he humbles himself for you and me. These are the reasons why Jesus humbles himself. And I think from these, we can actually begin to draw some principles for what it means for us to be humble. There's three of them. If you're the writing down type, you can do one, two, three. I'll say them multiple times. Don't worry. Don't worry. You're not going to miss anything. And I think feature number one of Christ's humility is vocation. It's vocation. Jesus has a sense of God's call on his life. He knows what he's supposed to do. He has a job. And he's going to walk through that job as best and as fully as he can. And he must know what it is. That vocation is for us our sense of call as well. And so Jesus endures his humiliation for the sake of the joy. That is, for the sake of God's call upon his life. And that call was, to put it succinctly, to fulfill the mission of God. To inaugurate God's kingdom on earth. To take up the supreme throne of lordship over God's creation. And through that work to gather together his people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. That was Jesus' job. And having that vocation in mind and knowing that was essential to him becoming an image for us of humility. And Jesus was humble because he knew and listened to the voice of God. And this way, we can also be imitators of God. And you know what? This is actually running throughout Philippians. Paul continues to restress your identity in Christ Jesus, who you are. You've been called, you're being led to these great things. I hear these, Paul says these things, I hear these great things about you, which means you know who you are. And don't be confused in knowing who you are in these things. So Paul restresses that vocation. We're going to come back to these things in a little bit. So, because it leads to the second feature, which is this, radical obedience. So we have vocation, but we also have to have radical obedience. It's not enough to know the call. You have to answer it as well. I might know God's call on my life. Like Jonah, he could be saying, go to Nineveh. And I could be radically disobedient and head towards Tarshish. And that's that's not what it is. It's not enough to know the vocation. You have to obey God's voice as well. 
It's not enough to be called to inherit the nations. There was an act of radical obedience as well. And I remind you that Satan also offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth on a platter. But he did it in a way that neglected the cross. It was a shortcut. I can give them all to you as well. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Same conversation happens with Peter. Jesus says, the son of man will be betrayed. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. And on the third day, I'll rise. And Peter says, no, Lord, not you. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. How would you like that if Jesus said that to you? You'd have a bad day. Go home licking your wounds. He called me Satan. <laughs> so... But this is the central crisis. It's the crisis of obedience. Will you obey radically according to what God has asked you to do? Or will you take shortcuts? Or will you dodge? Or will you try to avoid the difficult parts? And Christ's humility appears like an exhibit in just simply radical obedience. Although he's in the very nature of God, he took on the nature of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It was this radical obedience to the call of God. I will do it God's way, no matter what. So there's no cutting of corners. We see the Philippians also called to radical obedience. Let's look at Philippians 1.27 again. Um, 1.27 and through 30, uh, which had these phrases. Oh, Philippians. We're locked. Maybe God wants us to talk about Hebrews 1. Okay. Um, uh, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that where I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. You know who you are. One mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened at anything by your opponents. A clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. Go ahead. Next. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. You will experience a test that leads to radical obedience manifested in suffering. Paul seems to have this in mind for the Philippians as well. Final feature is service to others. We have vocation, radical obedience, and service. It was not simply a matter of Christ knowing God's call and obeying it radically. He performed that action with the knowledge and awareness of others. He did it thinking of you and what he got by way of you through this. It wasn't sufficient for him to, and this is really true, Jesus could ascend to the throne of heaven and earth and obliterate all people in the process because he doesn't need you, but he does it with an eye to others. And here we see chapter, the very next verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, uh, where Paul seems to say the same thing. Uh, if you have encouragement, Christ, uh, encouragement, participation, affection, sympathy, and complete by being of the same mind. Be harmonious together. Be of full accord. Go ahead to the next, verses 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I don't think that's an invitation to be deprecating. I think it means that we move together as a group. We don't leave stragglers behind in the faith. Now, so we've got these three things, and I actually think one that's, um, this is where I get excited, and here's where I have to be short, but uh, where I get really excited, is I think that these three things give us some explanatory power about our errors in humility. If you think you have a vocation, and you are radically obedient, but you don't pay attention to others, you will do violence to the community. So I'll pick on Jesse, because I like Jesse. Jesse's got a vocation to be a worship leader. Here, he's right here, Jesse, worship leader. And he's got radical obedience to that worship-leading business. He practices, he plays, he plans. But imagine if he completely ignored all of you in the process. And then he ascends to heights of stratospheric personal worship, jamming to Jesus, and we're just left, left awash behind. Isn't that an exhibition of pride? 
neglect of the people of God? So you have to have all these three things. Or sometimes when we're really self-deprecating and people really put themselves down, isn't that a kind of radical obedience but without vocation? Aren't you trying to, I'm going to be the lowest I can possibly be, but I'm like, but God hasn't asked you to do that. That's not what you're supposed to be and supposed to do. And so I think these things give us a way to see that actually when we go wrong, we go wrong because we didn't know what God asked us to do. And we didn't obey it properly. And when we obeyed properly, we weren't considerate of other people. I think about the vocations that are on my life right now. I think there's three big vocations on my life right now. I'm, I'm a husband, I'm a father, and I'm a student. Okay? Probably in that order. Okay? I'm a husband. I have a radical vocation. I have a vocation from God to love and serve my wife no matter what. If I deny that vocation by trying to love and serve someone else's wife, I'm in trouble. Okay? If I have this idea of what it means to love and serve my wife, but I never actually do the work or obey it, then I'm a hypocrite. I'm a fool. And there's real work to be done in serving her and in loving her, which I fail at. I'm not, good, I'm not terribly good at it. But I know what I have to do. And I'm the best husband I am when I'm radically obedient to that vocation. And yet I have to do it in light of who she is. It's nothing like, I have deduced mathematically what it means to be a husband, and now you will obey. <laughs> That's a problem too, isn't it? Also an exhibition of pride. I'm a father. Imagine if I studied all the knowledge of fatherhood. I've read every book possible on being a dad, but I never actually spend time with my kids. It's absurd. And so within these things, I think, I think we get a clear picture of what it means to strive to be humble. Again, you don't actually strive to be humble. You strive to know what God has called you to do. Now, you've all got relational roles in your lives that involve some vocation. Um, there are husbands and wives. There are children and parents. There are relationships of student to work. There are relations of employee to employer. You all have vocations in that sense. You also may have secondary vocations. You may have ministries. You may have dreams and desires, things that God has planted in your heart that sit there. And you know what? It's important for you to find out, what has God really asked me to do? It doesn't have to be inheriting the nations. It might be, you know what? God has asked me to be a janitor. And I'm going to be obedient to the call to being a janitor. And I'll find my joy in that. So a lot of people who give up amazing careers because they play this game of vocation with one another. Not by, by meaning they play the right game of vocation. But they had great opportunities. And they said, you know what? I would rather serve Jesus than do these other things. It's a fascinating set, and it helps you to discern these things. Uh, some of you are in that vocation spot. You know, some of you do actually know your vocation already. You are perfectly clear on what God has asked you to do. You know it, and you know what? You're struggling to obey, or you're obeying partially. And you're trying to bargain with God, like, well, I've done this much, God. And there's a point where you have to be radically obedient where there's, there may be a kind of crucifixion involved in following through what God's asked you to do. Some of you are radically obedient and you care for others, but you don't have a sense of vocation. This is a very dangerous place to be, too. I think that makes you a slave. You're just a slave. Rather than being a son, someone who knows what God's asking them to do. And lastly, like I used Jesse's example, and I used him as an example because he's not like this. 
but you might know what you're doing and you might be radically obedient, but you're not thinking about the people around you, not being considerate of those around you. And that's a dangerous place to be as well. (laughs) This is a total bizarre story, but this is worth saying. Sometimes, none of you, a few of you have probably been to Christian universities like I have, so I went to a Christian school. And one of the dangerous things that happens is that boys fall in love with girls and girls with boys, but they spiritualize their love lives. So you get phrases like, the Lord told me to date you, right? And so there's this sense of vocation and then there's obedience. He's told me I'm going to follow through with this, right? <laughs> and the, the best response that girls give, which they should give, is that it's funny, he didn't tell me too. There has to be this mutual understanding that we move along this way together. Well, uh, let me just briefly pull this all together. Paul commands us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We do that by being like Jesus, which is hard. We are supposed to be like Jesus, according to Philippians 2, in his humility, but humility is gained indirectly. If you set yourself for humility, I don't think you can attain that. You have to be indirect. You have to seek something else, and humility comes as a byproduct. And therefore, we become humble like Jesus when we seek to know our vocation, in some sense, and not my will, but yours be done. Not my idea of my future, but your idea, God. What is it you want? We become humble like Jesus when we are radically obedient to that vision. I'll let nothing stand between me and God's call upon me. And we are humble like Jesus when we serve one another in the midst of that obedience. It's not my obedience and forget you all. It's our obedience as a group. So, we get to pray about this stuff now. And as I thought about this, and as I was praying this morning and these last couple days, um, it occurred to me that, it didn't just occur to me, I think it's true, that there are a lot of you who may be wrestling with vocation. And this morning especially, as we listened to worship, the word vocation just kept pushing through my mind. Some of you really want to know what God has in store for your life. And some of you have been slaves. You're doing work, but you don't know why you're doing it. And you're being worn down bit by bit. And so maybe some of you need some restoration this morning. And you need a sense of God's call so that you can do the work. Of course, there's always some of us who are, we know what we're supposed to do and we're not doing it. And maybe there's some repentance to be prayed for. But wherever you are, and whatever the case may be, um, the ministry happens up here. When you come forward, members of, the, um, members of the small groups will come, home groups will come and pray for you and lift you up before the Lord. So we have some worship time, we have some ministry time, 